welcome back to part two of our critical care episode. We're very excited to have the first time of one of our nursing colleagues presenting a paper for us and all of our listeners from a nursing background out there, please join us. We'd love it. We've got Gladys Kabil. She's presenting a paper entitled The Association Between Intravenous Fluid Resuscitation and Outcome Among Patients with Suspected Infection and Sepsis, a retrospective cohort study. She was the primary author. It's local Westmead produce. This is more close to home paper with data from four hospitals across the Western Sydney local health districts. The reason why um, we set out to do this study was I was looking at fluid management practices in the emergency departments across Western Sydney local health district. And I still wanted to see if it's relevant or if it actually matters fluid management and the arguments about it. Because in literature, there was a lot of debate about how much fluid we should give what type of fluid we should give, when we should give what. And no one seems to have an answer. And lots of the papers, particularly the 2001 River Zettel study, reported a significant mortality benefit from early goal-directed fluid resuscitation, about 16%. But since then, over the last two decades, there have been several other papers that either contradict or support those findings. There's been some large randomized control trials on vasopressors versus not using vasopressors and liberal fluid resuscitation versus restricted fluid resuscitation, all that sort of stuff. But however, with local data and also specifically focusing on the time to first intravenous fluid administration, that was not very common in Australian context. We thought we'll... um, See if there's any association between the intravenous fluid resuscitation and the outcome among patients that present to our emergency departments. So this was done from a sample from 2018 to 2019. So the objective of this paper was basically to investigate the association between the timing and the volume of intravenous fluids administered to ED patients both with suspected infection and the primary endpoint was all-cause in-hospital mortality. It was a retrospective cohort study and we got the data from all hospitals. We included only the adult population from that over the age of 16 years who received fluids within the first 24 hours of presentation. So during this study, there was about 7,533 patients that met the inclusion criteria for suspected infection. Out of these, there was about 1,996 who met the criteria for suspected sepsis. So for the suspected infection, it was based on if they've had a microbiology swab or culture within the first 24 hours. For those who were considered to have suspected sepsis, we looked at the modified ED-based SOFA score. It was greater than or equal to two. And if they had received antibiotics within the first 24 hours. There was also a subgroup of septic shock people in line with the sepsis-3 definition with a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 mm of Hg and an initial lactate of greater than 2 millimoles per litre. This was the subgroup that we looked at as well. In the study, the method was simple, retrospective, multivariate analysis, and the primary endpoint was, as we said, all-cause in hospital mortality. 
So the exposure variables we looked at was the total volume of fluids administered up to 24 hours after triage and also the time from triage to the first intravenous fluid administration. Um, and we looked at some of the covariates like comorbidity index and if they were on any immunosuppressants and if they had any other treatments such as vasopressor administration. The results showed there was no association between the time of initiation of fluids and in-hospital mortality among the survivors and the non-survivors, uh, but there was an association with the amount of fluid administered. So with each 1,000 mLs of increase in the fluids administered, there was an association with the reduction in risk of in-hospital mortality rate an adjusted odds ratio of 0.87 and 95% CI 0.76 to 0.99. This association seems to be stronger in patients with septic shock and those admitted to ICU, which did not show an association with those who did not have septic shock or those who were not in ICU or ward-based care. Patients who received greater than 3,600 meals over the first 24 hours had lower in-hospital mortality as well compared to those who received less than 3,600 meals. Again, this is not a randomized control trial. So there's lots of limitations to this study in itself. It does not demonstrate a cause-effect relationship in any sense. However, the controversy is about whether or not we need to administer fluids or whether or not we need to remove the initial resuscitation phase move forward could be to some extent identified from this. It could serve as a precursor to some of the randomized control trials that are being planned currently when we look at the vasopressors and the restricted fluid administration model. The other thing that we also have limitations is with the data itself. We do not have information about pre-hospital fluid administration, for example. So it might not be reflective of the actual fluid that, or the amount of fluid or the time to administration of fluid that the patients received. We also found, because it seems to have a kind of an effect, modifier effect on severity of illness, patients who were sicker seem to show more benefits. Um, the time to fluids might not also be a true results because oftentimes the sicker patients get treated first quickly in the emergency department. So it might not be a true reflection of the mortality outcome as well. Given the limitations and given there's no possibility of conducting a randomized control trial to say whether or not we give any fluid to a patient, even with the RCTs, they're randomized after they have received the initial fluid resuscitation or the subsequent fluids. So it's only for the cumulative effect that we are able to look at an RCT. And there's no other option. This gives us an idea of maybe, yes, fluid resuscitation is still relevant. Maybe there's value in the guidelines that ask us to do so. Amazing. Thank you, Gladys. Thanks for doing this paper. I think it's a really good reflection as well of, I guess, things that we can do in terms of using our increasing volume of e-health data that is you know, progressively becoming available to us. Just to start with, I'm going to ask everyone a very simple, basic question. Are we under-resuscitating our patients due to excessive caution with fluids? So again, this is pretty patient dependent. That's the 
problem with a lot of the stuff we're doing in this this realm is that patients are all individual and septic shock certainly certainly fluids back in the dark old days of my intensive care training it was eight liters in the first 24 hours <laughs> you'd fill them up dry them out and put them on vasopressors so judicious fluids i think there's there's a lot of argument and a lot of evidence say judicious fluid loading with measurement of outcomes of fluid loading is the most important thing and whether that outcome measurement is a bedside echo whether it's blood pressure change whether it's stroke volume variation, cardiac output, or an cardiac index, doesn't really matter. I think we can get finicky about how we measure stuff, but essentially judicious fluids help. It keeps things that need to work working and it keeps people alive. I think what this for me showed, I'm not trying to be disparaging, but I stretched the glasses in the room. We did exclude a lot of people. We excluded a lot of low-grade people who probably didn't need anything at all from us apart from some oral antibiotics at home or nothing because it's viral. We probably admitted a lot of people and gave them antibiotics and fluids and they didn't need it. But the septic shock and mortality group is really the target audience for this sort of study. Like, you know, you want to know sick people, does it have benefit? They're not so sick. They're probably going to get better anyway with a variation of time and intervention. And as I said before in our previous episode, time and intervention, you know, you can then make an argument over would fluids have made that time less or slightly more. Who knows? Yeah. Does it matter? Their days do matter. So we know it does matter on an economic uh, sense and a whole of hospital sense, but certainly in septic shock, I think, we're pretty much done and dusted. Judicious fluid management is really important. Yeah, I got to agree with that. So it's a mainstay of therapies, the the term that keeps coming up in all the papers, right? Basically, uh, all the guidelines that you read, uh, you know, large society-based guidelines will always recommend some volume of fluid. And uh, so it's really interesting to actually examine the, the, like, why do we do that? Why do we say that? Because it, logically, it actually doesn't make a lot of sense. So sepsis, when it comes into the ED, usually presents with a hyperdynamic circulation, right? You give fluids because you want to increase preload, because you want to increase cardiac output. But these people usually have like quite an increased cardiac output already. Their um, usually organ blood flow, when you look at that specifically in humans and in animal models, is actually increased. So to say that you're using fluids to reverse shock in these people is actually probably wrong. Um, what we use it for is probably not what we think we're using it for. So for example, the reason why your kidneys will fail in septic shock is very rarely due to a lack of blood flow. It's frequently because your tubules under the effect of endotoxin just decide to curl up and stop doing useful things like filtering. And they do a bunch of self-defensive things that hopefully keep them alive. But the result of that is uh, this acute kidney injury, creatinine accumulation, urea accumulation, and oliguria. All of that happens irrespective of what the blood flow is doing, which is really fascinating. So it's really interesting to just challenge the actual paradox. Why, why do we even prescribe fluids? Typically, though, a patient who comes into the ED with sepsis and septic shock did not just develop sepsis and septic shock in the last five minutes. They were sitting at home vomiting for three days and not eating or drinking anything. So typically, they will present with a bit of a fluid depletion kind of a state. So they will be hypovolemic. And that, that is probably where the fluid resuscitation comes in. So Gladys' study is amazing because it is a great observation of control group from all of the sepsis trials that Australia publishes that have shown no benefit to early goal-directed therapy because we already do early therapy that is aimed at really valid hemodynamic goals. And we do that really, really well. That's why all of our studies have a control group that does much better than control groups in like sort of uh, European or UK and American data. Uh, probably this early mood resuscitation actually is one of the reasons why 
the rationale behind, I guess, our progressive caution is this fear of creating volume overload. We know that this causes harm. There was a lot of mention of composite comorbidity score in your paper. What did it actually comprise? And was it a useful way of identifying patients who are vulnerable to fluid overload? So it was calculated using a complex formulation by a data scientist from Macquarie University. She used information that's already recorded from EMA. However, what we missed was if there was anything recorded as a free text information from medical assessment, for example, that wasn't available. Well, they just looking at the CCI score and to see if that was anyway associated with contributing to the all cause in hospital mortality, which interestingly did not show any association. So essentially that could have been basically any comorbidity then. It didn't really stratify what the nature of those comorbidities were. Not really. Okay. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. What was the rationale between the choice of the numbers when you were stratifying the result? And I noticed that when you separated it into four groups, it was less than a thousand, then a thousand to 2,400, and then 2,400 to 3,600, and then greater than 3,600. And so sort of, you know, not exactly symmetrical groups. How did those numbers get chosen? From previous studies, looking at how they have stratified it, we also looked at surviving sepsis guidelines where they're talking about the 20 to 30 mils per kilogram. But we found not everyone got the recommended volume. So to see there was also the argument of restricted fluid therapy. So the restricted fluid therapy group chose an arbitrary constant of 1,000 males. That's where we stuck with that 1,000 males and then progressively move upwards based on that. What are the limitations of this sort of multivariate modeling? Like when you're taking a huge retrospective data set, I know we've had our AI episode in cardiology a few months ago. Are we at risk of overfitting our data? You're absolutely right, because what, what can potentially happen is you'll end up with, you know, creating subsets or creating subgroups, you're compartmentalizing your data in a way that produces an effect, apparently, where perhaps there wasn't one, or perhaps the effect isn't clinically relevant, but then it'll drive some kind of decision-making. And we see this a little bit with sepsis trials in general, actual fact, or fluid trials in general, where, for example, sub-post hoc subgroup analysis, for example, arbitrary cutoff points are created, and then from these get this apparent benefit from something like, for example, steroids in sepsis, or, for example, where you detect a survival benefit in patients receiving blood transfusions because of a hemoglobin range that you've chosen, which was completely arbitrary. So you're absolutely right. Probably the more finely you slice that interval, the more likely this is to happen because the more data points you generate. And so statistically, the chances are a P will become significant somewhere. Yeah. And then uh, there's a there's a PhD in there for you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the risk, I guess. It's finding an imaginary signal, which is yeah. actually noise. You're hunting for association. That's what you're doing. There's so many confounders in all of these studies that if you slice the pie up into the fine enough pieces, you will find something that you can publish with a p-value less than 0.05. The question then becomes, is that p-value relevant? Is that statistical significant result really relevant? Is that what we're trying to find? So the more you read every piece of journal information article out there, got to look at it as a, am I looking at the primary outcome or am I looking at the secondary outcomes? And then all of the post hoc stuff that they add in as tertiary outcomes, we just keep slicing until we find something. If you slice every big data set up enough, you will find association somewhere to publish something that may provide more confusion. It's the more confusion debate today. Like <laughs> We'll do stuff to provide more and more confusion in the world, which will drive more research in wrong directions. The take home from this really for me was we cut a lot of the crap out. People who don't need intervention have been just cut out. And I would argue, 
and it's hard for Gladys because, you know, you're trying to do it off a, an EMR and e-health platform is that you probably could have cut a lot more people out. And we did because we ended up getting to a group of people who ended up getting somewhere with septic shock or getting to ICU. And that's probably the group where we're going to make the most benefit early in their hospital experience. Yeah. The guy with diverticulitis with a white cell of 15, who's got normal hemodynamics, he can have fluid. He can't have fluid. I don't really care. If he's got any fluid. But it's the one that comes in with an element of, you know, respiratory rate driven at 40 breaths a minute for the last seven days, who now is dry because he's breathed out all of his fluid or the guy who's been dumping it all in the toilet. They're the ones that benefit. Okay. So hyperperfusion effects will get benefit from fluid loading. The other thing that was interesting is when you break the subgroup down into these arbitrary groups, you can actually say, I don't think someone who I look now as a patient at the end of the bed, if I look at some motor and say, she was probably a little bit dry. I may not give fluid now mm-hmm. based on the fact that it really doesn't have an effect. It doesn't matter. If I look at you and go, oh, you look like you're a pickled, then yeah, sure. I will give you some fluid. So I think that's the other, other secondary benefit is that from this, we can maybe extrapolate. We might be doing too much for a lot of people, but not enough for some. And so walk away from it going, I can take away some messages here. Personally, I think this is, again, the product of having big data sets is that we're now trying to extrapolate lots of information out of them that may not necessarily be relevant. I commend you, Gladys, on doing it because it's a lot of work. But I think that the take-homes here for me really are those two big things. Key with these situations is not getting too excited, right? And I think Gladys, again, has been very appropriate in that. Like It all needs to be taken with a grain of salt, and I think that's reasonable. The other concept, I think, from a stats point of view is face validity, which, you know, like a lot of stats, I think sometimes we get too bogged down in the terms. It's just common sense and, you know, common sense and application of your own individual bias, essentially. So yes, this is valid to my current biases. Therefore, I will accept it. I do think that the findings of this paper do seem to have some sort of face validity. Certainly in my experiences of referring people to ICU and then, look, some of them end up going to ICU, but some of them, the ICU reg comes down and says, just give them another liter or two of fluid. And miraculously, they just get better after the eight hours of sitting in the ED. One of the things I was going to raise, not from an ICU perspective, was how much some of the large volumes of fluid were just a read arbitrary blood pressure points that will get people to the ward. And then it gave me a small chance to reference my favorite Thai study of where they used basically blind NORAD on the ward through a peripheral cannula to meet those blood pressure targets and found that actually people got a lot better with only a 30 mil per kilo bolus of fluid. One of my takeaways from this, I guess, is the significant number of these fluids, particularly from a logistics and practical point, probably partly is driven by reaching arbitrary blood pressure target numbers for the ward. So what are you advocating there, Christian, that we put people on the ward with noradrenaline and a blood I, pressure I, monitor? I, I was just referencing my favorite study. <laughs> How interesting that we should contemplate giving vasopressor these terrifying, you know, nightmarishly uh, toxic substances in the defenseless ward population having two-hourly uh, non-invasive ops. Who'd have thought that that could potentially be safe and appropriate? It is remarkable <laughs> that I can prescribe metadrine or you know intranasal phenylephrine and increase somebody's blood pressure in a ward population who are receiving no monitoring whatsoever. And these are not titratable drugs, which are much less safe than noradrenaline. Uh, so anyway, I guess what I'm saying, this study, what, what can we derive from this? So um, the roughly three liters or so that uh, the patients in the septic shock uh, um, uh, subgroup got is totally on par with basically every study in the last 10 years that was published that um, looked uh, that even reported anything at all about the pre-randomization fluid volume, right? So promise, arise, process, everything basically had 
And all of those studies basically didn't show very much benefit in doing much more beyond that, which is actually a lesson for the intensivist rather than your audience of ED people. You guys are already doing a great job. It's we should just restrain ourselves and not give massive amounts of fluid because that's what's been demonstrated to cause harm. So all the studies that have demonstrated harm from fluid resuscitation being excessive have been studies where fluid balances of over seven to 10, like 10% of body weight uh, fluid balances accumulated in the first six to seven to three days of ICU stay. That's where the harm is probably coming from. This is when your capillaries are their leakiest and um, your, your lungs will fill up, your organs will become edematous and begin to malfunction. So that's probably where the restrictive uh, strategy has the greatest value. Uh, and early resuscitation is probably where it has the most value to, to be liberal. And that's, that's kind of my guess as to where the data will eventually take us. It's funny, the American intensivists love those trials for the mere fact that they can then be restrictive. The American emergency physicians hate them because they've got a sepsis bundle now that basically precludes them from eating anything but three liters of fluid <laughs> in ED. So it's a very interesting swing there. You know, they've, they've recognized the fact that too much is probably bad, but a reasonable amount in septic shock early is mm. beneficial. Yep. So we get our hands tied <laughs> and you guys get released to do whatever oh, okay. you want. <laughs> uh, so this, is, this is just the, the beautiful pendulum of medical uh, therapy that will eventually come to it'll rest swing, somewhere, yeah, yeah, in, somewhere the in the middle. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it'll be some amount of fluid for the people that are the driest and the sickest. And it'll be whatever the hell you want for the not very sick group that have a mortality of what was it? 3.1%, I think, for, your, for Gladys's study. Are we actually good at doing fluid balance assessments? How do we decide how much fluid someone should get? I think we give fluids pretty poorly in ED just in general. I think we do too much for a lot of people in ED and we are kind of the rod for our own back in terms of how much work we are bringing in. So we are bringing in a lot of people to emergency because we're validating a presentation that didn't need anything but a pat on the head and home you go. So what we need to do is look internally and say, what is our cutoff and how do we judge that? You were taught tongue, skin turga, all those simple clinical things. Now you're, you can be a bit more adventurous and you can pull an echo probe out if you want to in terms of how much you give versus am I going to give it? But generally people survive if they're drinking. It's amazing. If you can drink, you don't die. Yeah, this is really interesting. So fluid resuscitation is actually viewed as this uh, like really benign reversible step that you take if you are concerned about blood pressure, right? And blood pressure is only very tenuously related to cardiac output and cardiac output is very tenuously related to preload, which is what you're doing with the fluids. So you're absolutely right to challenge that thinking, right? So what, what are you actually doing with that? Historically, physicians, uh, ED physicians, intensivists, everybody's really bad at assessing fluid balance. We are great at detecting when it is terrible and the patient is massively dehydrated or massively overloaded. But that middle ground that's going to, you're going to give your 250 mil bolus for, that middle group is probably really poorly assessed by everyone, senior or junior. So the assessment tools that are available to the intensivist for the, the severely ill patient, you've got the all kinds of, you know, the absolute orgy of information generated by tons of monitoring devices only confuses the situation more. That's that's very clear from the literature. So, um, and uh, ultimately most people will, when forced to the wall, will admit that a fluid bolus is the gold standard of determining whether or not somebody's going to be fluid responsive, for example. So <laughs> does that that makes sense. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. So why are you giving fluid? Well, none of us actually know either. <laughs> and the basic take home is if you're getting less than a liter, you shouldn't be giving it at all. We're essentially saying the not septic patient, let them sit in the corner. The septic patient who doesn't have substantial heart failure, renal failure, liver failure, 
give them three liters and don't be shy. Who should we be careful with in the context of sepsis? In anyone in whom it's not going to be reversible. So for example, people who have already presented with substantial oligurea or like quite impressive acute kidney injury, they're not passing much urine. You put in an IDC, uh, some kind of an amber colored droplets come out, but no actual urine. Uh, so that's, that's probably the group in whom you've got to be the most careful. And that's because you can then produce worsening uh, respiratory failure in addition to all your other organ system failures. And now you have another problem. So that's probably the group in whom to be the most careful. The frail elderly who um, you look at them from the end of the bed and you you can see almost the thickness of their LV and how hypertensive they've been for the last 80 years of their you know two packs a day career. Uh, so that group with severe diastolic dysfunction, who will, they will not do well with uh, major changes in volume up or down. So that's probably the other group that I would be very concerned about. So you can identify them by their history of smoking, hypertension, diabetes, and their obesity. Do I agree with Alex? Remember what you're doing it for. So there's a difference between fluid resuscitation and ongoing fluid maintenance. So when I made the flippant remark about if they can drink, they won't die. Some people can't drink. So they need some fluid. Um, whether it's they're surgically ill by mouth or they're old and frail and just are delirious and just won't drink because they can't remember to drink. So they're the people you could give fluid maintenance to, but not fluid resuscitation. Now, in the context of resuscitation, there's also an argument that some people may slip through the cracks if you don't give them fluid. So the guy with diverticulitis may develop a SERS type response and he may become a little bit more leaky in the short term. The fact that you didn't give him fluid resuscitation initially is not a loss. People have the right to change the way in which they present themselves every every minute that they're here in the ED or in the ICU. And then we have to be malleable enough to you know, adopt a different strategy when they're not winning. So for me, that's how I practice now. I'm happy to leave you in the corner, but if you demonstrate to me that you need a change in management, I'm happy to say that I was wrong and I'll move on and do something different. So the take-home message there is just because you don't give the three leads at the start doesn't mean you may not need to give them at some point. It just hasn't manifested itself right now. The fascinating thing about Gladys's paper was that the time frame, you know, giving it not necessarily in the first 30 minutes or the first hour, but just in the first day. And that really seemed to separate out the the wheat from the chaff in terms of, you know, all of the people who perhaps didn't need it and the people who did. That's really interesting. And perhaps then I'm reading between the lines and saying that maybe in those more frail patients, you know, you could potentially use the same amount of fluid, but you just use the smaller aliquots so that you know when they stop being fluid responsive because apparently that's the only data that we have that's useful there's there's enough data on this to do its own episode but just very briefly that you know in a discussion of fluids i thought i had to mention balanced versus sodium chloride look we've had the salted uh, paper we've had smart we've had basics we've had plus we've had a couple of meta-analyses some people think that it's better some people think that it's worse some people think great for sepsis. Some people think, don't give it in head trauma. What should we be doing? You saw how we both put our heads in our hands, <laughs> started shaking uncontrollably. Who knows? I don't think there's an answer still. We have done this multiple times. I think we do know there are some things that just don't work. So stay away from them. In terms of which sort of crystalloid you will use initially, I personally don't think there's any evidence to suggest that any one is better than the other. I think though, once you get into the mode of giving too much of certain types, then you can cause more problems and you need to be aware of that. In terms of specialized fluids for specialized situations, yes, there is some data that suggests that certain types of fluids in head injury may be better than others. However, again, small papers, very small cohorts. Mm. 
don't get caught up in the hype of all of those things to change your management now. Mm. You know, if things aren't available, don't go looking for them. Just do what you do well. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of weird stuff is floating in this space. And a lot of people have like weirdly strong opinions about it, which I find fascinating. Uh, and look, many of them are intensive. And myself, I've been, I'm prone to say line bashing. I have referred to it as pickle brine uh, historically, uh, because that's, well, for lots of reasons, but um, uh, mainly cultural reasons, because in the ICU, we pride ourselves on being big biochemistry nerds. And we typically do uh, follow electrolytes really, really closely. And we see an elevated chloride and we think, surely we can do better i've just made the acidosis ever so slightly worse oh my god what's this going to mean uh, you know how do i interpret this a base deficit of minus six now oh it's minus seven the next day the chloride's even higher do you see what i'm saying so obsessing over these uh this numerology is probably what drives a lot of our fascination with fluids because we don't like abnormal results and we want to make the results as normal as possible. And so um, we puzzle over this, where in actual fact, it is, I put to you colleagues, incredibly difficult to kill a young normal person with chloride, right? So you give them two liters of saline and that is 300 millimoles of chloride and their beautiful, normal young kidneys will just pee it out with no issues. And that has been demonstrated abundantly in all kinds of prospective and retrospective data that we've published. I think it probably doesn't matter at all until you get to a point where you're a specialized subgroup. You, yep. you have a traumatic brain injury and you, your uh, sodium is going to keep your brain from becoming overly edematous. Or if you have hyponatremia and your sodium is 110 and you plan to be giving them large volumes of fluid, or your bicarb is one and you've got a severe metabolic acidosis, you're about yeah. to start buffering with like intracellular proteins instead of bicarb because you've run out. You know, that kind of situation uh, calls for a bit of more of a refined approach. Now, I, again, colleagues, I put to you that those patients are never going to get enrolled into clinical trials because their pH is seven point, like 6.7 and they're expected to die. They're in that category. They get excluded. So you're not going to see anyone uh, actually studying this in any meaningful way. So that's probably the group that would benefit most from balanced crystalloids. The severely alkalotic patient might benefit from some extra chloride. That's how I would interpret it. So to just publish more 15,000 patient studies, I don't think is going to really reveal the, the true answer here. Interestingly, this paper didn't find any association between the use of vasopressors in the first 24 hours and mortality. Is it just because that time frame is too wide? You know, we've been talking about early vasopressors and sepsis for since I was an intern and became vaguely aware that research exists. What, do, what does the evidence tell us? So early pressors in sepsis is probably a subsidiary goal. Or it's, it's an epiphenomenon of early attention to the septic patient, right? So we know from, from all the data that we've done, all these negative trials, all they've basically done is demonstrate to us that the worst thing you can do is just to completely ignore them and park them in the corner of the ED, do nothing about it, and don't measure their blood pressure. So um, measuring their blood pressure, looking at it, saying, EGADS, it is low, and then doing something about that is the key message. And that something could be fluids for the patient that for whatever subjective reason you feel is volume depleted or uh, vasopressors for the patient that you subjectively feel is either fluid overloaded or is just uh, not, doesn't merit any further fluid resuscitation. But that's, I think, the bottom line. That's the message. And you probably won't find that answer. Um, early pressors could potentially be harmful in some groups, uh, particularly the extremely fluid depleted people. That, that group's already maximally vasoconstricted. What you're doing is potentially doing more harm to their splanking circulation, for example. So that's probably the caveat there. Um, whether we start vasopressors too late 
is probably not a question you can answer in Australia where pretty much everybody has access to some kind of critical care expertise, right? So everyone will come upon somebody with uh, some now, so we'll then start mesopressors for them within the first you know, six to 10 hours usually of them presenting to the ED if they're not fluid responsive. What I'm saying is that if you, know, if you do protocolize it somewhat, the standard of care is actually already so high uh, that you won't see much of a difference. Just remember too, the definitions of septic, and septic shock have changed <laughs> as well. Since the early work, we've brought in scores like QSOFA, which have then brought the definitions down and includes more people. So I think there's a lot of inclusion when maybe we need to exclude more people because mm. most people will do well. Yeah. It's hard to die. It's really hard to die. So you've yeah. got to have like the septic shock population in Australia actually is doing really well compared to uh, matched cohorts around the world. We're, we're just awesome at sepsis people. Good job. Good job, everybody. Gladys, this has been a really great discussion. Thank you for bringing this paper. Do you want to give us a couple of take-home points? From myself, because of the focus of the study, I would say not to discard fluid resuscitation as an outdated concept. It still seems to be relevant. And if we can, as Mark said, not ignore the people that actually most need it. We've got our second interlude segment for the day. Greatly looking forward to listening to oh, Alex on his latest rant. Uh, I don't so, so have anything prepared, but um, it was just the toxicology discussion of the carrot juice that we just had, uh, which fascinated me, uh, reminded me of something that I read not long ago. And again, I'm going to ask Mark to just briefly put on his toxicologist hat again, um, because it's about the use of organic toxins in human culture for various weird reasons. Uh, physostigmine specifically, it's a drug that I always uh, think about and never give because my understanding is that there are three possible outcomes when you've given it. It's either the patient who has got uh, this uh, anticholinergic drug toxicity will suddenly wake up and become incredibly polite or they will become asystolic, or they will have relentless seizures. Well, one of those three things will potentially happen. <laughs> uh, so, so, and digging into the history of this substance is fascinating. Like, Mark, have you ever given this stuff? Okay, so let me say there's a fourth outcome. Uh, it'll do nothing at all. <laughs> uh, have I used it? Yes, I have. Yeah. Do I use it now? No, I do not. Okay. <laughs> okay. And there's probably reasons for that. So the origins of this thing are amazing. Uh, they come from a bean that grows in West Africa. And it has been used there since time immemorial for this beautiful purpose where let's say that, you know, in the Western world, two dudes like the same girl and they will go and have a fight and knock each other's teeth out. And then, you know, that's how they solve their arguments. And that's, that goes back a long way. That's a tradition. In this uh, West African uh, culture, instead, they'll go to a, a local shaman and the shaman will cook up some of these beans. And then both dudes will drink a concoction of aforementioned bean. And this is an ordeal by poison where the survivor gets the girl. And that... <laughs> I think, colleagues, that is, <laughs> that's how you solve an argument. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a fascinating trend that actually has, even in the 19th century, in a relatively enlightened age, you might think, of you know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, something similar continued where Rudolf Virchow, the father of modern pathology, those who don't realize, he was also a politician and he was involved in this, he was a sort of leader of this progressive political party in Prussia uh, and had this massive argument with Otto von Bismarck, who was the leader of the conservatives, uh, about something stupid like naval funding or something like that. And so Otto von Bismarck challenged him to a duel. 
which is the thing that you do in that scenario and potentially could still happen in our parliament. So Verkov chose toxins as his weapons and basically said, we each eat a sausage. What, they're identical, but one is infected with trichinosis. And so <laughs> the survivor is the winner. Uh, I think that that is uh, spectacular, colleagues. I don't think I could do any better than that. And I was going to bring that into our department meetings, but I was, uh, uh, I was banned. So, um, you mentioned some names. Yeah. I have a sausage with some names on it. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. That was a fascinating discussion. I think sometimes it's really worth examining the things that we do every day as opposed to the things that we do very rarely. Please join us for part three, which is looking at ventilation. I'm on the edge of my seat. With this feeling I can leave I'm working and